This is the Game Dev Field Guide bonus episode number 11. Today's special guest, Rachel, solo dev of Witch Hazel Woods. This episode of the Game Dev Field Guide is sponsored by the patrons. Everyone gets this content for free, and it's thanks to the generosity of the patrons. If you would like to support the show, get a special Discord role, and have a vote on the normal episodes of the Game Dev Field Guide, I'll leave a link for how to become a patron in the show notes. Bonus episodes have two segments. The first is Buff Debuff, and the second is a keynote or thought from our special guest. If you're just interested in the key thought, I'll leave a timestamp in the show notes. Let's get started on the first segment, which is Buff Debuff. Buff Debuff is a game that we play where community members provide short um, topics in our community discord. These are typically single words or single sentences. And I don't really do any prior research or write anything down. I just look at the words and I decide if it's buffed, which means it's trending up or I like it, or debuffed, which means it's kind of moving in the wrong direction. And yeah, it's a fun way to get some quick takes uh, keep in mind that's all these are. These are off the top of my head. Uh, I may make mistakes. I may say things that I think about later and say, well, that doesn't seem right. But yeah, I guess here are my unfiltered takes on today's topics. The first one is game design books. I would say game design books are buffed strictly because it's just an extra avenue to learn game design. I personally probably wouldn't learn that well from a game design book. I kind of prefer video essays and really podcasts. I think those are my favorite ways to consume information related to game design. But everybody learns differently, and I think having a book is just another way for maybe those of you who prefer to learn by reading to learn game design. So for that, I would say game design books are buffed. Next, we have text-based games. And I'm going to say, this might be a controversial one, I'm going to say text-based games are actually debuffed. I think the trap with text-based games is that people think, well, they're simpler to make than other genres of games because you don't have to worry about graphics. The flaw there, though, is that you're really just trading the simplicity of not having graphics with a more complex narrative design. And even a technical design, it can be difficult because you have a lot of different threads going around. And they're just hard games to design in general because you have to figure out the inputs from users. And you could put them on like a really hard path and say, here are the only inputs you can use. Uh, But I think the beauty of text-based games is their flexibility. And so the good text-based designs, in my opinion, accepts um, any kind of input typed in by the user. But this can be really difficult. Let's say we want to allow the player to light things on fire, maybe to start a campfire or something like that. Then you have to consider all the ways people might input that into your game. Some might type burn uh, wood or something like that, or some might type light wood. You'd have to figure out every verb or most that people are going to type to 
ignite <laughs> uh, the campfire. And so, yeah, I, I guess you're just trading one part of the game, that is the graphics, for additional complexity in a different part. And it's an extremely niche genre of game that is not that popular anymore so even after you do all this difficult stuff to make it likely not many will play it unfortunately so for those reasons i think text-based games are debuffed the next topic is multi-projecting or working on more than one project at a time if you've listened to my most recent episode you will know how i feel about this in terms of your success in actually finishing game projects And with that, I'm going to stand by that and say that doing more than one project at a time is debuffed, although I do know that it works for some people. I think there's nothing wrong with having like a maybe a prototype of a few games kind of on the side and then working on something as like your main game. The problem always is, though, is that your main game is going to hit that dip where you've lost motivation to keep working on it. It's going to happen with all projects. Um, And instead of powering through that dip, if you have other projects, you're just going to go to those. And then those are going to hit the dip, and you're going to move to the next project. And you're never going to finish anything, or at least that's the pattern that I fall into when I multi-project. And so for me, it's debuffed. And I think a lot of people, well, I know actually after (laughs) publishing the last episode, episode 49, that that's a problem that resonates with a lot of people. A lot of people get stuck in that. So yeah, if you're one of those people, multi-projecting is probably a bad idea, albeit a fun and tantalizing idea. And I'll fully admit after (laughs) I worked on that episode, I think it was maybe Friday night or Saturday night, I had a little bit of free time and I made a shader for a project that I'm not even working on. It's sort of a side thing just for fun. So I understand the allure and I even fall into the trap of multi-projecting, but I think on the whole it's debuffed. The next topic we have is quality versus quantity When it comes to social media marketing for your game, this is something I am admittedly still trying to figure out myself, but I'll tell you what the experts and all the research I've done for my own marketing plans for my games, the experts would say that quantity is buffed. And this is simply because the judge of quality is not yourself when it comes to social media content. If you think about it, who decides what is good is decided by the algorithm or the people liking your post or whatever. And so you're much better off than maybe putting one post a week that's really quality. You're much better off just posting a lot of posts and then seeing the reaction and kind of moving in that direction. Maybe there's a certain kind of posts that people really like and retweet a lot, and maybe you kind of keep doing that. Basically, you arrive at quality posts by seeing the reaction of people, and the best way to get the reactions is to post a lot. That's sort of the general strategy. I will say I don't do the best at following it. Uh, I'm still hung up on quality. And yeah, I'm sure the methods are going to work a little bit different for everybody, but I will say the general advice is that quantity is buffed and quality, I won't say is debuffed, but, you know, less preferred, I guess we'll say. The next topic I think is referring to 
how AI moves about your world and specifically in Unity. This is sort of a, a very niche topic. Um, it's nav mesh agents versus transform updates. And I believe it's in the context, the poster didn't say, but I believe it's in the context of how do you move AI around your world? I'll say from my game, Bounce Shot, I definitely use Unity's nav mesh system. It has, in its current form in Bounce Shot, it has uh, some polishing that needs to be done. But I'll say that this was definitely the way to go. The nav mesh system in Unity is definitely buffed. It makes things really simple, especially when you create a new level. You literally just click one button and a nav mesh... Uh, mesh I guess or a grid is created for your level almost instantly and then the agents can navigate the level with the click of a button so yeah I would say unity's nav mesh system is buffed and the last topic we have today is specifically for UI this is a slot UI or a grid UI the person asks which do I prefer and I think I know what they mean um, by UI slots, they mean, do you just have like, some people might call it floating UI, where it can kind of be anywhere on the screen and you make slots that hold panels, for instance, and then the UI goes there, uh, versus doing it in a grid fashion where you kind of pick lines on a grid to figure out where your UI goes. I, for all of my games, do the sort of slot or free floating UI and I should preface this whole thing with UI is my least favorite part of game dev and it's probably my biggest weakness <laughs> so this buff debuff might be one that you don't listen to but yeah I would say the slot system is buffed and the grid system is uh, neutral I guess I don't I don't know enough about doing it on a grid to say that it is debuffed but I prefer a slot or free-floating UI. Just because it's a lot more flexible, uh, I can choose where the UI can go, and if I like want to move it, I don't have to figure out a grid pattern to like keep everything equidistant from each other. I can just click and drag the slots and figure out what looks nice. And what looks nice isn't always on a grid, in my opinion. It's definitely about, to me, it's more about like presenting information in a composition that is nice to look at but also not overly obstructive but yeah like i said ui is a weak point of mine so maybe that's not the best idea so yeah that's going to do it for today's buff debuff it's still one of my favorite segments and i really look forward to doing it every bonus episode i know at one point we were maybe going to mix up segments for the first uh segment and do other stuff but it sounds like other people also like listening to Buff Debuff, and I like doing it. So yeah, for the short term at least, it, we're just going to stick to it. If you have a good idea for Buff Debuff, maybe a single word or a small idea that you want to hear on the segment, please go over to our community Discord. I'll leave a link in the show notes. And uh, yeah, just post your idea there. We have a specific Buff Debuff channel, so... Yeah, I look forward to seeing you over there. And for now, let's move on over to the second segment of the show. The second segment of the show is a key thought from our special guest. Today's special guest is Rachel. She is a solo dev, and she has a game on Steam now called Witch Hazel Woods. You can wishlist it today. I'll leave a link to it in the show notes. 
And yeah, I thought Rachel would have some good insight because she is a solo indie dev. And I like to get a good mixture of dev experience, whether that be through people who have careers in AAA and people who have done indie games. Maybe people are specialized or general, whatever it might be. But I think Rachel specifically is going to be a great guest because, as you know, on the Game Dev Field Guide, I call it the Swiss Army Knife Dev, or it's the idea that you could do everything solo. Not that you have to, but I'm a big fan of solo devs who can do everything that's required to make a game. I think it makes you really self-sufficient and uh, really gives you a diversity of skill. Anyways, Rachel is one of these people, and she has a great guest segment for you today. So without further ado, please welcome the solo dev behind Witch Hazel Woods, Rachel. Hi, I'm Rachel, the solo dev behind an upcoming indie game called Witch Hazel Woods. By day, I work full-time as a data engineer, um, but since May of 2020, I have been working on Witch Hazel Woods uh, in my free time on evenings and weekends, and I'm almost done. I expect to have the game ready for release in the first half of this year. As you may guess from the name, Witch Hazel Woods takes place in the woods. Uh, When I first started toying with the idea of making this game, one thing that was daunting about making a game that takes place in the woods was the amount of artistic labor that would go into properly creating the environment. I'm a birder and a real lover of nature in general, and when I'm in the woods is when I feel most at peace and happy. I wanted to capture the authentic feeling of being deep in the woods, closed in by many trees and a diversity of ground cover plants. But as a solo dev whose strengths are more so on the programming side and less so on the art, I was intimidated by the sheer amount of art that this vision would require. I wasn't sure I could do it justice, and I really wasn't enthusiastic about the idea of spending my time drawing dozens of different trees and plants. Uh, So one of the first proofs of concept that I did early on in the development of Witch Hazel Woods was looking into procedurally generating some of the elements. Uh, This has worked out really well for me. The vast majority of the trees and plants that appear in the game are procedurally generated, and this has allowed me to fill the game's environment with hundreds of unique trees and plants, so the environment doesn't look repetitive, but I also didn't have to bore myself to tears drawing them all by hand. So I'd like to discuss some of the techniques I used and some of the main difficulties and concerns that I ran into. These include quality assurance and performance. So to start, let's discuss exactly what I mean by procedural generation and how it works at a high level. Procedural generation can be used in many different ways. Um, Entire levels of games can be procedurally generated. This is a technique that game developers use to provide their game with quote-unquote infinite levels and often means that no two players ever have exactly the same experience of playing the game. The programmer in this case would have to carefully develop a set of rules that describe how a level may validly look and work, and then create an algorithm to generate a random level that abides by those rules. This can be very, very interesting, but it's not what I did in Witch Hazel Woods, and it's not really what I'm talking about today. Every player of Witch Hazel Woods will experience the same levels and will even see the same trees within the levels, but 
Those trees are not sprites that I drew and then imported into the game. They are drawn by an algorithm at runtime. So this is what I mean when I'm talking about procedural generation. So here's how that works, uh, technically speaking. Um, I want to start by saying I developed the game in Game Maker Studio 2, and I do not have experience with other game engines. So I may use some terms here that are specific to Game Maker, but I imagine most other game engines have similar capabilities. Also, Witch Hazel Woods is a 2D game, which makes this easier, but it can be done in 3D uh, as well. So Game Maker has some simple functions for just drawing like basic lines and polygons and these are what I use to draw my trees. Each type of tree or plant that appears in the game is its own separate algorithm. So let's start by just discussing uh, like a bare deciduous tree. So basically just like a tree with many branches and no leaves. This is one of the first trees that I added to the game. Uh, deciduous trees are kind of like fractals, if you think about it. You start with a trunk and at the top of the trunk, it splits a few times to form the largest branches. And then you can think of each of those branches as a trunk of sorts because it also splits at the ends to form smaller branches. And this repeats, you know, two or three times, splitting until the branches are quite thin and don't split any further. So when you think of it like that, it starts to become clear how you can use recursion to draw a tree. Uh, imagine you have a function that takes in a starting point and an angle. And the function draws a thick line that starts at that point and moves along that angle. You call that function, initially setting the angle such that the first line goes straight up. That'll be your trunk. And then the function contains several recursive calls to itself, with the starting point now being the top of your first line, and with a variety of different angles. This will draw some branches protruding from the top of the trunk. And then each of those branches will also recursively call the function again, producing the uh, sub-branches. You gotta make sure to set an ending condition so that the function doesn't just keep calling itself infinitely. Uh, you can use the stack depth, or basically a measure of how many times the function has already called itself uh, to achieve this. So the tree should start to look right at a depth of around three or four. That's the basics, but it's going to look really bad at first. Uh, you will need to tweak it a lot to make the tree more realistic. For example, you're going to need to make it so that the branches get thinner as you move up the tree. You don't want every branch to be as thick as the trunk. It'll also look pretty bad if each branch is actually just a single straight line. Um, in practice, you probably want your function to draw a series of small line segments that attach at slightly different angles and connect up appropriately so that each branch is a little bit curved. And you may also want your branches to get thinner towards the end, so each of those line segments within the line will be a slightly smaller thickness than the previous one. I could go on and on. It takes a lot of tweaking before it starts to look right. Of course, any procedural generation algorithm needs to incorporate some element of randomness, otherwise it will spit out the exact same tree each time it runs. You can get creative with this as well. Uh, the angle of the branches relative to the trunk or the prior branch should probably be something that's decided by a random number generator. Maybe the overall scale of the tree varies randomly too, so you get some big trees and some small ones. Maybe the number of splits produced at the end of each branch is random as well. 
You can get really creative deciding just how much randomness you want to incorporate versus which parts you want to retain control over. For example, my branches split either two or three times, and that's essentially decided by a coin flip. That's pretty restrictive, but I thought four or more might start to look too chaotic for my game's style, so I chose to kind of lock it down in this way. This leads me into the first major concern with regards to generating environment procedurally, and that's quality assurance. Maybe you will be more successful at this than I was, but um, I tweaked my tree algorithm for a long time and still found that only about 80% of the trees that it created looked good. <laughs> um, when you leave part of your tree's fate up to randomness, sometimes you'll just get unlucky and your tree will just come out looking a little goofy. I really didn't want these goofy trees to make it into my game, so this concerned me. Early on, I was populating my environment by basically just saying like, okay, I want this area to have 50 trees. So I'm gonna write an algorithm that generates 50 random trees and then places them in random locations. This means that every time you load up the game, you get a different environment, which can be kind of interesting. But it also meant that some of the goofy looking trees were making it into the game and also led to issues like having some trees that are too close together while other areas had like big gaps with no trees. You could certainly tweak your algorithm to build some like intelligence into the spacing, but instead I decided on a different approach altogether. So I'm gonna back up a bit now and talk a little bit about how randomness works in programming. Um, this may already be familiar to a lot of you, but I just wanna make sure that anyone who's newer can still follow along. So there's no such thing as true randomness in programming. When you use a random number generator, you have the option to first provide it with a seed value. If you provide a consistent seed value, you get a consistent result. So if you seed the random number generator with the number zero, right before you draw your tree, you'll get one particular tree. And you will get the same tree every single time as long as you provide that seed value of zero at the start. But if you seed it with the number one, you'll get a different tree. So if you want to make sure you get a different result every time, you can do something like seeding it with the current timestamp down to the microsecond. Uh, but if you want consistency, you can get consistency by controlling the seed value. So what I ended up doing for Witch Hazel Woods was building a system where uh, for each tree, I get to specify its X and Y coordinates and also its seed value. So this allows me to pick where each and every tree goes such that I don't end up with any of those awkward spacing issues. And it also allows me to pick which random trees actually make it into the game. If the tree that gets produced when I seed the function with zero is one of those goofy looking ones, I can just avoid that seed. And this also means that each player sees the same environment when they play the game. The experience is the same for everybody. I really feel that this got me the best of both worlds. I was able to leverage procedural generation to get a huge number of unique trees without having to draw them all myself. But I also didn't have to sacrifice on quality. The game is also smaller than it would be if I hadn't used procedural generation because there are a lot fewer image files than there would be if every tree was a sprite. If you use procedural generation to build your environments, this also opens you up to some really interesting possibilities. So without giving too much in the way of spoilers, um, there's a scene in Witch Hazel Woods where uh, reality sort of breaks down for a minute. One way that I was able to kind of add to the ambiance of this scene was by having some of the trees randomly change. 
So at a random interval, I would just select like a handful of trees and just change their seed value. So all of a sudden, a tree just suddenly changes shape into a slightly different tree, which kind of adds to that feeling of like reality is shifting around you. Something that I didn't explore for witch hazel woods, but I imagine could be quite doable is adding animation to your procedurally generated trees. Like you could probably achieve the effect of wind blowing through your trees by just tweaking the algorithm for a few frames such that each tree segment bends slightly more to one side than it did on the previous frame. There's really a world of possibility here. Next, I want to talk about another big concern that you should think about if you plan to use this type of procedural generation, and that is performance. So remember, all the visuals in your game are drawn every frame for however many frames per second you want your game to run at, and typically this would be no less than 30. As you might imagine, it is a lot more compute intensive to run through this uh, recursive algorithm that draws a tree line by line on every frame than it would be to simply render a sprite. As a result, if you use too much procedural generation or use it in the wrong way, your game may run slowly, especially on lower end computers. I found a pretty straightforward solution to this in GameMaker, which was to make use of surfaces. Surfaces are a concept that GameMaker provides where you can draw onto the surface once and then store it in memory. And then after that, you can kind of just treat the surface as if it were a sprite. So the recursive algorithms that actually draw the trees just run once when you first enter a new area. All the trees are drawn onto the surface and the surface is saved. And then every frame, you're just drawing the surface from memory. This is much, much faster than drawing each tree each frame. But surfaces can be memory intensive, so that's just something to be careful of. My use of surfaces actually synergized really well, too, with my desire to implement parallax scrolling. That's the effect where uh, distant objects kind of move by more slowly than near objects as you move. So basically, each like quote-unquote layer of scenery in the game is drawn to its own surface, and then the surfaces just kind of get dragged around as the character walks. Surfaces in the back get dragged more slowly than surfaces in the foreground, and that creates the parallax effect. Again, I'm not really familiar with other game engines, so hopefully a similar concept exists for you to make use of on your engine of choice. Uh, I imagine it probably does, but maybe by a different name. So that's it for my crash course on procedural generation. Uh, I hope you'll consider giving it a try and have fun out there. And of course, if Witch Hazel Woods sounds interesting to you, I would very much appreciate your support. The Steam page is up now, so you can wishlist it if you would like and follow along for updates. Again, I'm hoping to release in the first half of this year. Uh, you can also follow me on Twitter. I'm the underscore data babe. Uh, so follow me on Twitter to get updates on progress of Witch Hazel Woods as well as musings and commentary on the general experience of being a first-time solo game dev. Thanks for listening. And there you have it, a very informative keynote by Rachel about procedural generated art for her game Witch Hazel Woods. I hope you can see how earlier I was talking about the idea of being a Swiss Army game dev, being able to kind of do 
a little bit of everything. And I think part of that is being able to do the work of multiple people or do more work than one person could by thinking creatively and using your tools in a way that sort of like force multiplies your efforts. And I think Rachel just gave an awesome crash course on how to do this for the trees in her game. She identified early that drawing all the trees and having a artistic vision for woods where not every tree is the same uh, was unachievable if she was going to have to draw them herself. And so she played to her strengths and did it procedurally. And I think this falls within the idea of that Swiss Army game dev. And I'm really happy with that keynote thought. I think that's really going to help some people and cement the idea of what it's like being a solo Swiss Army game dev. If you want to hear more from Rachel, I'll leave her Twitter stuff. I'll leave links to all of her stuff in the show notes below. But the key thing you should do is go wishlist Witch Hazel Woods. It's on Steam now. Go look at the screenshots and see that the proof is in the pudding for her tree algorithm. It looks great. It has a very unique art style. And yeah, go check it out. I'll leave a link in the show notes. If you want to get a hold of me, I'm on Twitter at underscore Zaccavelli underscore. And I participate in our community discord pretty much every day. So I would encourage you to go check that out. With that, I think I'm going to end the episode. I'll see you next time on the Game Dev Field Guide.